I don't know if when the Buddha taught about mindfulness practice, about seeing things as they are, that he ever imagined a meditation center right next to a tattoo parlor and just down the hall from a gym. (laughs) It certainly makes for some interesting sounds and experiences. So... So often I think of practice um, using the metaphor of cultivating a garden. And some of you, I know some of you are gardeners, and I suspect there are more gardeners in here than I know. And so we know that you know, there's a lot of work in creating a garden, preparing the soil and putting the right nutrients in there and endless amounts of weeding, it never stops, and fussing over, you know, just the right amount of sun and shade and, you know, you buy a plant and you put it in and you think it's in the right place, but the plant says, nope, I don't like it here, I'm going to go over there. And that way in which our gardens even seem to have their own minds. And there are just so many conditions for a really good garden, and a lot of them actually aren't in our control. So we've been talking in here in these last many weeks now, actually, about the conditions for waking up. And, um, and just as in gardening, you, know, you don't know, do you, ever, with a garden, quite how it's going to turn out. And sometimes it's fabulous, and sometimes you forget something, and sometimes it does something utterly different from what you expect. And I think the same thing is true with the conditions for awakening. You know, we, we do our best with them, just as you do with gardening, and, and try to create the conditions, try to support your own waking up, And to some extent, once you've done that, then the rest, it's not up to you. So we've talked, again, just to go over the list, some of you are probably, I think, getting so you could recite it backward and forward. We've talked about working with suffering in a way that is transformative and that helps us to um, move through it and to learn from it. And we've talked about confidence and delight and joy and tranquility and happiness. And then last week, We talked about concentration, about the place where we focus the mind, which was what we worked on in in the instructions at the beginning of the sit today, that place where you work with the breath and focus the mind and allow that placing the mind on one thing to begin to bring some calm and some clarity. Last week when we um, talked about just began to point a little towards the step that comes after concentration. It's called the knowledge and vision of things as they are. I think it's my favorite name for all of the different steps. The knowledge and vision of things as they are. And it's not the end. That's one of the things that's really interesting. You'd you'd like to think, okay, now now I've seen things as they are. I'm done. I'm liberated. But I regret to tell you that that's not true. There's a couple of steps after that, which we'll point toward at the end. 
So it's more like if you're making your way through a very dense forest or a jungle, or maybe you're hiking in the Sierras and you can't really see you know, where you're going. And then all of a sudden you come up on top of a rise or maybe up on top of a ridge. And certainly I've had this experience many times in the Sierras. And then you look and way over there, way over there, you can see the lake where you're going. But you also see, of course, you're not there yet, right? And you see, oh look, I've gotten this far, and you can see that you're going to get there, and sometimes you can even see little bits of the trail between here and there. But you can also see you've got a few miles to go yet. So that's what this, this particular step is like. It's like where you be, really begin to see the lay of the land, you begin to have some understanding of it, but it's not full freedom from suffering yet. But it's, I think it's that place where we begin to see, oh, the, the picture's a little different from what I thought it was. So when I was first thinking about this, I was remembering that when I was a child, <clears throat> probably like all of you, I drew pictures of my world, right? And you know those pictures that children draw. You know, the tree is kind of a round green thing with a brown trunk and the sun is a yellow circle in the sky with rays coming out of it and houses are like this with pointed roofs and doors and a couple of windows. And I think children even now still make pretty much the, the same pictures and or sometimes the dome of the sky had the moon and the stars. Sometimes in some of my pictures we had the sun and the moon and the stars all in the same picture. And, you know, I thought that's how it was. The sun was pretty much that round yellow thing and the stars had five points and they hung out up there in whatever it was that the sky was. And, of course, also in those pictures when, that we draw when we're children, we are often in the picture, you know, that's me, we'd say, or there's mommy and daddy and me and sister and brother and, and kind of in the center of our world. And so, as I've often talked about in here, one of the great gifts of this recent exploration of astronomy that I've been doing is I know, of course, the picture is really different, right? That um, the universe is billions of years vast and that we inhabit a little infinitesimal planet in a kind of remote outer arm of a relatively insignificant galaxy. And, um, you know, there are views from relatively small scopes that, uh, to quote one astronomer, you can bask in the combined light of at least a trillion stars. Imagine, you know, a trillion Stars. I still don't really have a clear notion of exactly what a trillion is. A lot of zeros. And so whatever it is that is me is a very insignificant element in a very, very big picture and not the reverse. And that, I, that whatever it is that's happening with all of us, we're participants in the unfolding of time and space and that the personal is kind of an aspect of that unfolding, but it's not the reverse. So, 
beginning to have knowledge and vision of things as they are. In some ways, I was the thought went through while we were sitting. I thought, well, this is really a talk about not knowing. You know, it's not knowledge and vision of things as they are. It's getting it that you don't have the foggiest notion of things as they are, really. And beginning to understand that the, any conventional understanding is just that, that it's conventional and it's not, it's not some ultimate truth. And so we, when we begin to see this, it's when our view of what is so begins to relax and to open and to become much bigger and much more spacious. And, and the conditions for this happening are when we begin to have some trust in our practice, when there is some delight and some joy and some happiness and some tranquility and some concentration. All of those things that we've been talking about in recent weeks are what allow the mind to relax and to open and to begin to see a much bigger picture. What might, and it might just be the tiniest glimpse. It's like, oh, it's bigger than I thought it was. And then you're back to your kind of narrow, uh, me in the middle of everything view. And then it opens up again. And, and so we have a, a really different view of what's happening. And, and when that begins to happen, we hold our own suffering in a different way. We begin to see how everything is constantly changing, coming in and out of being. And we begin to see how the self of anything, something that's solid and concrete and permanent, cannot be found. There's no way in the end that you can find something that's solid and permanent and self for anything. So one of the biggest obstacles to having this bigger view is um, some sense of identity with our own personality. It's called Sakyaditi in Pali. And you know, that we, uh, or personality view, if you want the English translation. So each of you, you know, if I said, who are you? You know, you'd say who you are. You'd say, I'm Julia, or I'm John, or I'm Leslie. And you could tell me, you know, where you worked, and what you did, and what you liked, and what you didn't like, and how you grew up, and all of that stuff. I mean, we can all do that. Our talk about our way of being in the world. And we train children to do that, don't we? You know, who's that, we say to the little kid. And, you know, they always think it's really fun when they begin to get to say, that's me, you know, that's me. And, um, you know, that's Mary, or that's, you know, that's John, or that's Leslie. And we teach them this is my hand, and my foot, and my head. You know, and so that you, you're we're kind of teaching children to get identified with themselves. It's useful in time and space. You wouldn't want not to do it. But we get really solid, solidly connected with these personalities. And of course, we also teach them, don't we, to have personalities that kind of work in the families that we grow them up in, you know. So it really helps to have a child who has a personality that meshes pretty well with mom and dad, whatever that looks like. And each of you, again, 
Of course, that's the stuff of which countless therapy hours are made, where we look at how it is that we got caught in some family pattern, and, and it's not working so well in our adult and everyday lives. So in ordinary time and space, this is all helpful. It's great when you go out there after we're done, you're going to know which pairs of shoes are yours. It's not very often, I can't say never, but it's not very often that people walk off with the wrong shoes. And you know where to go when you leave here and you know what your zip code is and what your phone number is. All helpful. But we also know that the personality has drawbacks. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I get tired of mine. You know, I'm really ready sometimes to be done with my Mary Ornus. It would really be nice to have for a while, just to change somebody else's personality, you know. And I can see, once in a while, something starts to come up, and it's like, I'm sitting back, kind of back here a little bit, and I think, look at that, she's doing it again. <laughs> One more time, you know. And, and some of you were probably sitting there looking at me going, look at that, she's doing it again, you know. One more time. <sighs> and I think sometimes that actually contributes to the sense that, like, oh, I don't think I can do this practice. You know, how can I do this practice? I'm not going to ever live up to those same ideals. And we begin to see that that um, the personality, the personality isn't any refuge at all. You know, not at all. Being, being me is not the refuge. So when we look closely enough, we begin to see that there's components of this thing that we call the personality. And one of the ways of describing them is a list that some of you may know of, which is called the five aggregates. So these are like the five, sometimes it's called the five heaps, sometimes it's called the five baskets. And so these are the things that come together, you can think of them as like being in an eddy in the stream. And when they're all together, that's you. And we cling to this. We attach ourselves to them, and we say, well, that's me. So it's form, this body thing that you inhabit. Some of you have been in Bob's 32 parts of the body class, where you've really been hanging out with the different parts of the body. And we get extraordinarily identified with the body, because when the body goes, then whatever it is that is me that's happening, that goes too. So there's the body, there's the, the pleasantness and unpleasantness, the quality, the feeling quality, the feeling tone of things. So all of our experience is pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. There's perception, the ability to recognize our experience, to know that we're seeing or hearing or tasting or touching or smelling. And... and um, to, to have, you know, to recognize that it is what it is. And then there's mental formations, which are the stories that arise and wrap around our experiences. All the many, many stories that we have that create intentions and more actions and sometimes perpetuate cycles of suffering. And then there's consciousness, which is sort of the basic awareness of mind, which makes all experience possible. And so the understanding is that form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness, these five aggregates, this is what there is, 
And when it's in this consistent eddy over the period of as many years as you get to be here, it's you. But if it disbands, when they disband, the, you know, they all separate out, it's not you anymore. They just happen to be arising together. None of them are self. So it's a convention, this thing that we call self. It's a little, the image that I often use, I love to use, is the, the Big Dipper. You know, if you look out there at the Big Dipper, if you do it tonight, it's been in the sky. And we go, oh, it's the Big Dipper. But you know, get in your trusty little spaceship, 75 light years away, we happen to know. And is there a Big Dipper? They're not even all on the same plane. Some of them are 120 light years away. You know, they're farther, some are closer, some are farther away. It's a convention. It's handy. It's a way of identifying things in the sky. And so self and this sense of self is, is a handy concept, a way of identifying this experience that we're having. And we, you know, We talk in here sometimes about what in the Buddhist world is called the two truths. So in the time and space world, like I said earlier, it's really handy to be able to do that. It's very useful to know who you are and to know something about yourself and to have a sense of self and to know where you begin and end and how to protect yourself. But in the ultimate world, it's also handy to know that it is a convention. And we all know how quickly it can change. You know, utterly, utterly uh, turn on a dime and what seemed solid and permanent and like it was going to go on for another 30 or 40 or 50, 60 years, depending on how old you are, is suddenly very threatened and you don't know that it's going to last. Um, and we know that for all of us that day will come, you know, when suddenly the doctor says, I'm so sorry to tell you, and there's a diagnosis, or something happens and you realize that this event that calls itself you is coming to an end. And we don't like that. We don't like the notion that we're going to sicken and age and die. So the personality is helpful to begin to hold it in this bigger picture, to begin to see that it's not permanent and that it's not self, that it's a set of conditioned arisings and it's a habit and it's yours for the duration. So here's the good news maybe, which is if you get totally enlightened, guess what? You still know who you are and you still manifest as you, and your friends will know that you are who you are. My, my first teacher, Jack Cornfield, used to like to say, if you're unenlightened and weird, and then you get enlightened, you will be enlightened and weird. That's just how it is. So the personality kind of goes with the, with the um, package, but what's true is you're not so caught in it and not so identified with it. The more awake you are, the more enlightened you are. Ajahn Sumedho likes to say that waking up is just a simple, imminent act of attention. Open, relaxed, listening, being here and now. Really 
giving your attention to this experience so that when we do that, when we're deeply present with all of the requisite conditions of, for focus and concentration, we begin to see the flow, the process of change, that there's no solidity. We begin to see that whatever it is that is this personality, it's just part of a much, much bigger picture. And that trying to find any refuge or any stability or any safety in the personality isn't going to be so helpful. The refuge really is in not knowing. It's in a much wider view. It's what one of my teacher friends likes to call refuge in the big. He talks about refuge in the big. And that, you know, that re- this is refuge in what is, really. Whatever what is, is, is what I want. So maybe the question for each of us is, well, how are you being with what is? How are you being with what is happening? I talked with a friend earlier today about how helpful it was sometimes to just have a, even just a little bit bigger picture of what's going on. You don't have to get all the way in one jump. You know, maybe you just expand your picture just a little bit and then a little bit more and a little bit more. You know, can we meet each moment with happiness and calm and with focus and so that we really accept each moment for what it is, not needing to have it all figured out, not needing to know exactly what it is, but more from that place where we're really filled with wonderment at what is. You know, Ajahn Chah, I didn't think to bring the quote, but he says, you know, then your mind will be like a still forest pool and all strange and all sorts of strange and wonderful things will come to drink at that pool and you will be still. And he says, this is the happiness of the Buddha. Just that place of allowing things to come and go and you will be still. So I think I'll stop there and see if you have any questions or comments and we can continue this that way for a couple of minutes. Make sense? Or not? It's probably more important to hear from you if it doesn't make sense, actually. Please. It's, a, it's an interesting question because it's easy to take this. So we have the chain of dependent origination, which is about how suffering arises in cyclical. And this is a, a, a different list, which is about the, it's called the um, transcendent dependent origination or liberative dependent origination, just for people who haven't been here. And it can be seen as a, you know, the, Working with suffering creates the conditions for faith to arise, which creates the conditions for delight, which create the conditions for, and you can see it as linear. But I actually think it's also helpful to see it almost like a holograph, you know, that all of these different things, so that there may be 
Um, it's a little more like the, the, that other list that we talk about, we've actually been talking about it on Tuesdays in here, um, called the factors of enlightenment. So it's more almost like a sense of ingredients and that you need all of them. So it's presented linearly, but I would invite you to hold it not linearly. Does that help? Yeah? Please. I'm going to be big. I see a few people nodding. I think you're not alone. It's, inter- it's a very interesting question. And probably the, my own sense is that when we start from some place, it's, it, I think, oh, let me think, I'm going to say this. I think deciding now I'm going to be big and spacious and I'm going to accept this music is probably, you're probably toast right from the get-go. <laughs> Just not going to work. At least in, in, my, in my mind and body, that's true. But when I can stand back a little and go, you know, that Mirior doesn't do so well with this kind of music. And maybe it's my nervous system. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's this body doesn't do so well with that kind of music. So maybe what I should do is go for a walk. Or, or in some kind way even say, not now. You know, that, that I don't think this means not taking care of yourself, but it really means that place of, of you kind of factor in the personality as one more component in that whole situation, and you're not identified with it. So sometimes we can say to our personality, okay, you've got to hang in there, stop, you know. But sometimes you can't, and then you have to make another, another perhaps more skillful decision. Yeah? It's always that, it's, I love the word view, because my own sense of view, I always think of view as having some space to it. And so you really want a wide view or a big view. And, and when, it, again, it's that place of, if, if you're in the three-year-old picture of the world and there you are right in the middle and the sun is about half the size you are, that's one thing. And then, you know, I can remember one of my Dharma teacher friends saying to me once, this was long before I got into the astronomy thing, saying, well, he said, I, I like to think that I'm one of six, bil- six, six billion, six hundred billion. I always have too many people, six billion people. So being, you know, one six billionth of the crowd, I don't feel so very important and my life doesn't feel so very big. And already it changes the perspective a little. And that's really what we're wanting to do. Yeah. But sometimes it's pretty wired in there. Mm. And music is one of those places, for sure. Anyone else? Be interesting being human, huh? Really. Such a job. (laughs) 
I mean, you know, there are times in, in all of this reflection about, I think, like, how did the Big Bang know to make me? You know, why did it do that? Or us, or Vipassana Santa Cruz. It's really weird. And here we are, trying to figure it out. So, okay, enough of that. Um, there are not too many announcements. <clears throat> are we done seasoning people? We are done seasoning people. All right, we have a new board, so um, you'll hear more about it. Pardon what? I'm John. Oh, he's seasoned. Yes, John, right here in the front, is one of our new board members. Leslie over here is our board president. Martin is a board member. Bill Coleman back there, he's the money guy. So who else? Have I left anybody out? No, no. We've tried. Andrea Fella, I'm about to announce it. Andrea Wells, um, Diana Dory Biande, and Hannah Mira are the other three. Okay, so the, there's a new comprehensive schedule over there on the table in case any of you are wanting one for your fridge. And just to say two things. Um, one is that on Monday the 26th of July, Bob Stahl is having a book signing at Bookshop Santa Cruz. I actually think we, I, I think we should, can we put that on our website? I don't know. We're not trying to raise money from it or anything. Pardon? No, Bookshop Santa Cruz. So I just thought maybe we could put it on the website and maybe even have a flyer and let people know so you can all go and support Bob, which would be really great. It's his book on mindfulness-based stress reduction. Yes, his, his workbook on mindfulness-based stress reduction. So if you're also wanting to reduce your stress, you can get one and work through the workbook and then you'll be stress-free. I don't know what time it is, but what time are the book signings usually there? 7.30, 7, somewhere like that. We'll get a flyer and then you can see. It's not until the 26th that we have time. And then the following Saturday on the 31st, um, there is a flyer, but it didn't make it here tonight, um, for Andrea Fella, who is uh, Gil Fronstel's assistant at IMC, and she's um, doing what looks to be a really interesting day long on the nature of mind. Um, and so it'll start at 9.30 and end at 5. She's an excellent teacher, very, very clear. I completely recommend her to you, and I think she'll be great both for those of you who have lots of experience and for those of you who are new. So watch for that flyer. It'll be here in a day or two. Um, Bill, do you want to say anything about how things are going in the money world? We're encouraging people to. We we need to pay the rent. If we don't pay the rent, we won't be here for you to come and sit. So it's as simple as that. So. Okay, so let's end with just a little bit of loving kindness practice. 
So just sit in a way that's quite relaxed and feel your body as it's sitting there. And in some simple way, extend some goodwill, some kindness, some friendliness into your own being. It can be with a phrase, wishing yourself happiness or ease. It can be with the breath, breathing, friendliness throughout your body. It can be with an image, whatever works for you. Let yourself be aware of the people seated around you, to your right and to your left, in front of you and behind you. And again, extend your friendliness and goodwill to each person here in the same way with an image or the breath or a phrase. Wishing each person every good thing. And then let your attention move on out, extending your awareness to all of the people in your lives, your family and friends and colleagues. Again, extending friendliness, the intention of friendliness, the intention of goodwill towards each person. If we do this practice well, we meet every being with equal kindness. You might want to include all the people we've listened to this evening. We can extend goodwill and friendliness to them. They'll never know. Maybe it's why they like standing there. And then let your attention move on out, wrapping itself around the planet, extending again our goodwill towards every person, towards every being who shares this planet with us. And then on out, into the cosmos to all beings in all realms. Last of all, we gather up all of the merit, all of the goodness of our practice, and we offer this merit for the benefit of all of these beings, that all beings may come to awakening, not one left behind. So I thank you very much for your presence. I invite you to introduce yourself to the people sitting near you and then we have tea and cookies and cherries and a chance to mingle and eat. So. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.